0: Welcome to Not Your Boyfriend's Sports Show. This week, we take a look back at the year in women's sports. And joining me on this episode is Shira Springer, who covers the intersection of sports and society for NPR and WBUR programs. And she also writes a women's sports column for the Boston Globe. Shira has covered all manner of sports stories over her career, From the Celtics beat in her early years to covering her fifth Olympics this past summer, she does feature writing and investigative reporting. And of course, she regularly writes about women's sports and all of their challenges and opportunities. So Shira, thank you so much for being here and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I thought that we would start off this conversation, this retrospective conversation on the year, with an athlete who really burst onto the scene. Uh, That is, of course, swimmer Katie Ledecky. So uh, you attended the Olympics this year. How unique was her performance?
1: Oh, incredibly unique. I mean, this is somebody who is not just winning by tenths of a second. She's winning by laps or, you know, great lengths of distances in the pool. I mean, she is dominant. It's not a question of will she win. It's always a question of... How much will she win by? Um, her times are often competitive with the men's times, at least nationally. Um, so she's just a really, really unique uh, talent and kind of, you know and, and sort of packaged in this um, very unassuming personality. I mean, when you talk to her and when she's interviewed, you don't get that killer instinct vibe off of her oftentimes. Yeah. Um, so it's this neat combination because she has obviously this intense competitiveness in the pool. Then outside of the pool, she has, I don't want to say retiring, but it almost is a bit of a retiring personality. It's not an in your face, um, aggressive personality. She's a very nice young woman, very intelligent, um, very thoughtful. Um, so it's, it's interesting always to see that dichotomy of competitive personality versus out-of-the-pool personality.
0: Yeah, sounds like she's saving her intensity for the pool, unlike some of her male swimmer teammates who <laughs> cause international ruckuses when they go to the Olympics.
1: Yeah, I think, I think you're right. She's saving her energy for what she needs to do in the pool. She's not wasting any of it. Um, and And let's be honest, she's smart enough to have her focus where it needs to be.
0: And she's only 19, so yes. she has a, you know, theoretically very long career still ahead of her. Yes. Um, and just, just to run through, she won four gold medals, a silver. She set two individual world records, and I really liked this tidbit. She became the first woman in 48 years to sweep the 200, 400, and 800 freestyle events. So why, why is that range so impressive for her?
1: well i think you said it right there it's the range it's the ability to go from the 200 to the 800 um you know usually like to put it in track terms which is my specialty you don't see a 200 meter runner competing in the 800 meters it's a little bit different in swimming but there still is that range aspect and let's not forget another impressive part of her resume is yes she broke world records at the olympics but she also entered Uh, the olympics as the world record holder in the 400 800 and 1500 freestyle now the really cool thing about her fast times is this her times in the 400 and the 1500 are fast enough or were fast enough to qualify her for the 2016 men's Olympic trials in those events. Wow. So you begin wow. to get a concept of just how dominant she is. Unfortunately, they don't contest the women's 1500 at the Olympics, or we would be talking about yet another gold for her.
0: Wait, so I just want to highlight this for listeners. They, there is an event that the men swim at the Olympics that the women do not swim, that Correct. she would theoretically have also won.
1: I don't think you even need to put theoretically before it at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I think you can just simply say that she would have won.
0: On a previous episode, I uh, had some guests on, and we were we were discussing whether or not men and women competing in the same events would help or hurt women's sports. Ledecky, as we touched upon, could qualify for men's events. So suppose that she did compete. Do you think that this would help or hurt women in swimming and and women in sports more broadly?
1: Yeah, I you know so it's a sort of an interesting debate because there is a part of me that you know when we market women's sports worries about and I've talked to actually some marketing experts at MIT about this because it's sort of one of the issues that I've been interested in, which is how can we better market and advertise women's sports how can we draw more eyeballs to women's sports and mm-hmm. i've been told that one of the problems is the constant comparison between male and female athletes instead of mm-hmm. making a case that women's sports are different and therefore better because of that difference we're constantly saying looking at them side by side and saying and 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 the women will come up short i mean let's be honest women don't jump as high often. They don't run as fast. They aren't as strong. They're just some physiological differences that they can't overcome. But that doesn't, at least in my opinion, mean that their sports games, contests, events, meets, races are any less compelling than those on the men's side. They're just compelling for different reasons. Uh, So I think we have to figure out a way to make that case and, and The great example that I always cite that that this one particular professor um, told me was, I said, well, hey, give me an example of a case, you know, a product which was marketed as different but better in a way that women's sports could be marketed as different but better. And Hmm. he said, light beer tastes great, less filling. There was no way they were going to market light beer as being the same as regular beer. And it's not that women are sports light. I don't want that to be the conclusion drawn from this, but I think we have to start thinking about women's sports as different than men's sports and because of that difference somehow better. But there is a strong, strong, strong part of me that would love to see Katie Ledecky in the pool against a field of men in the 1500 or the 800. But I also think it will transfer to other female athletes in other sports uh, because they will begin to see them as, as true competitors, as people with immense talent. And I, I think they somehow, that, or for some reason, that doesn't happen. Even if it's only a half of a 1% in women's sports right. that can be at that level, I think right. it sends a valuable message to audiences at large like, hey, all right, women's sports is for real.
0: Well, I just love I love that the that the forever fruitful relationship between sports and beer also has a (laughs) lesson for for women's sports in here.
1: (laughs) I mean, mean, it's like I I, I keep coming back to what that professor said and he said I I heard it maybe two or three years ago. And it just makes so much sense because you look at the the success of that advertising slogan and he's absolutely right. You know, once you stop the direct comparison. And say, it's better because of its difference. You begin to look at the product in a whole new way. Um, I mean, there's, there's, you can, you can sort of have this whole chicken and the egg argument. You know, are women's right. sports not watched? Not given as much respect? Be and not given as much attention because right. they're not, uh, the women aren't as fast or don't jump as high? Or is it something with the marketing and the advertising? Is it something with the investment of resources? I mean, there's a whole, there's lots of ways to kind of look at it. I know we've gone a bit far afield, but there you (laughs) go. No, I
0: mean, this has always been my sticking point that, that people dismiss women's sports so easily and they say, well, nobody watches them. And my point is, well, men's sports have entire industries within industries within industries that are solely dedicated to promoting and producing this product. And so once you shift your thinking from, well, the women have to prove it first before we can start making before this is seen as a good or sound investment. I think that men's sports has demonstrated, but our our memories are just too short that, you know, men's sports is, is a man-made product.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I agree. And here's, here's um, the interesting thing. I think the one thing you said was like they have to prove it. They have to prove their worth. And I think that's across the board. I don't think that's just sports. I think it was like I was reading something. This is going to sound like, kind of weird, but I think it was the founder of Spanx was talking recently yeah. in Boston, and she said something <laughs> along the lines of, men are hired on the basis of potential, whereas women are hired and promoted or promoted uh, on the basis of what they've done.
0: Yeah, I mean, once again, like, sports reflects society at large, right? I mean, these are the same issues that women are having in in any of their scenarios or situations.
1: Yeah. And I also think we're we're quick to forget too. And the unfortunate thing is the NBA and and the other, the men's professional leagues had the advantage of coming of age or developing and going through those rough early years when we didn't have sort of this whole sports uh, entertainment apparatus up and running. So it, it wasn't like, you know, 20,000 people were going to a a basketball game, you know, (laughs) in the 1950s or 60s. Right, right. (laughs) Um, And so, but that's what you see now. So the level of expectations are changed and men's sports have this tremendous head start. Again, you get into that comparison problem. It's impossible for women's sports to come out the winner if if that's the comparison, you know, this established product versus this new kid on the block, essentially.
0: Right. I really like something that you wrote um, in an article on this topic about kind of expectations that we have. And you touched on on expectations that fans have for kind of on demand sports at all times. Mm -hmm. And that being a women's sports fan is actually a really difficult job because you have to find live streams. It's not available you know, to watch on television, it's not widely available all the time. To get to games, you often have to travel, you know, miles outside of a main town somewhere where there's not public transportation that that just the task being asked is a lot more difficult than, you know, just being able to bring up the ESPN app and, you know, (laughs) see scores and 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 live plays anytime you want.
1: A hundred percent. I mean, that is such a, an important point to make. I was, you know, and I think it was, uh, I made it in the past uh, in relation to one of the women's professional hockey teams that plays in Boston. I think for a while they were playing at a suburban rink, which was hard to get to. Um, yeah. You couldn't find their games on television or even streaming for a while. So how are you a fan? And, and you know their website was slow to post results. So how, how can you nurture a fan base when it's tough to watch the games? How can you yeah. even begin to criticize women's sports, if that's your want, when it's tough to see what the product is? Um, I mean, that's yeah. the first step. You got to get the product in front of people. And if you can't do that, you're in big trouble.
0: I think, I think our next uh, story of the year actually speaks to this issue in a slightly different way. Um, this is, of course, Brianna Stewart and the her incredible success and performance this year. Um, just to run through it quickly, she won her fourth consecutive NCAA title with the Yukon Huskies. She was named MVP for the fourth year in a row. She was the number one draft pick for the WNBA. She won gold in Rio with the national team. Uh, sh- her WNBA team makes the finals, and she was named WNBA Rookie of the Year. And in, on, after this incredible successful year in what is, you know, frankly, the most successful women's sports league that we currently have, uh, she, she decides to go to China to play in the offseason. Um, so tell us a little bit about, about the decision making here and what that says about the strength of women's sports in the U.S.?
1: or or lack of strength um, in some respects. Uh, Well, I mean, the decision making process is, is pretty clear here, which is she needs to make a living playing basketball. And she's unable to do that comfortably with the salary that the WNBA pays her at this point. And listen, she's not the first big name player to go over to China uh, I think when uh, Brittany Griner was uh, a rookie in the WNBA a few years ago, she was making something like fifty thousand from mm. the Mercury. But you know, she could go over to China and make something like six hundred thousand. Um, wow! Yeah, exactly. And you know, you see the same thing with players. Uh, I think it was Diana Tarasi, you know, staying, skipping a season in the WNBA because her body couldn't do, you know, the two seasons, one overseas, one okay. WNBA. And she played instead solely for her Russian team because the money was that much better in Russia. Right. And so Didn't I think. Didn't
0: they pay her to not play in the yes, WNBA? They
1: paid her to not. I believe, you know, that there was, incent, the contract was incentivized in such a way that she was basically paid not to play.
0: Which is incredible, because these players, I mean, from everything I've read and understand, they really want to be playing in the U.S., obviously, where their families are, where their friends are, where, you know, they have an easier time with society and culture. And yet they make these decisions because at, at some point their
1: hand gets forced. Yeah, I mean, I th- that's exactly right. Their hand gets forced. I mean, what, 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 what would you want them to do? I mean, loyalty is nice, and... The idea, I'm sure, of staying in the US and training during the off season and working on your skills and getting better and improving and, and not going through the grind of another season is ideal. That's the ideal, right? That's the most appealing, but right. they can't afford it. Because also think about this too, they have a limited window of earning power as professional athletes.
0: Well, and that their earning power is, is delayed Because they're not eligible for drafts
1: until most of them are 22. But that's what they have, can afford to pay them. I mean, you also have to look at it from the WNBA standpoint, which is, this has got to be, and I keep using, you know, sustainable business model as a phrase, but that's always part of the dilemma when you think about women's sports. Let's not forget you have NWHL players who recently had their their pay cut by around 40% uh, because the business model wasn't working. So... It becomes this catch-22 of, yeah, you want to make the money, but female athletes can't make too much money or else that threatens the whole endeavor, you know, the whole league. Yeah. Well,
0: so this brings us to our our next story of the year, which is another group of women who have been taking quite the stand to get some pay equality. This of course is the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team. They filed a complaint with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission uh, against U.S. Soccer, which is the governing body of both the men's and women's national team, um, claiming that their pay structure essentially amounts to gender discrimination compared to the men's team. Um, so give us a little background here. What, what is their argument in a nutshell?
1: In a nutshell, honestly, we're better and we deserve more money than we're getting. And it's about time you stop treating us like second class citizens, like you care less about us, because Newsflash, we're the better national team. We have more World Cup wins. We have a bigger following. We're setting records for TV viewership, not just for women, but for soccer in the United States, for soccer games watched in the United States so wake up us soccer and do better by us that's 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 the, the you know what they're saying in a nutshell
0: well i think that this case is so is so unique because it's the one example where they where men and women actually have the same employer mm-hmm. so they have this unique opportunity to file this complaint and to kind of wage this war because they do actually have the same employer which is not the case with these other leagues um, so how is the the men and and women's pay structure different from one another um under this same organization?
1: Well, can I just i mean I think we could get into a lot of numbers, but I watched the sixty minutes report, which obviously had a a, a, a was incredibly well done, and I love love, love one particular comparison that they did, so I think that kind of illustrates everything so they took. Um, US men's goalie Tim Howard and they Mm -hmm. looked at what he earned in a World Cup year okay so it was almost four hundred thousand and he earned that for playing in eight games and then they compared (laughs) it with the US women's goalie Hope Solo now she earned three hundred and sixty six thousand dollars which is incredibly respectable uh, for a female athlete but here's the catch she got that for playing in 23 games. So wrap your head around that. Amy almost
0: three times. The
1: exactly. Money. Exactly. So a male player plays in eight games and makes more money. And let's not even, you know, get going on the fact that not only do they have the same employer, but the women are the more successful team. That's what really irritates me. That if this is all about ability and skill and winning and, and that's how you're valued, then the women shouldn't forget equal pay. The women should be making more than the men because they're, they're outstripping them in all of the categories that we say are key categories when it comes to the valuation of a player. And I understand their contractual issues and the women agreed to stuff and maybe they got bad advice. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they have regrets about the way their contract was structured and they get different benefits and so on and so forth. So The bottom line is this. This is The best soccer team in the country with the best soccer players in the country, male or female, they should be compensated as such. Period. Full stop. U.S. soccer should have done the right thing a long time ago. They should make an, You know, they shouldn't have gotten into this contractual tug of war. They should have just said, hey, you know what? You've done good by us. We're going to do good by you. And they didn't. And now here we are.
0: The other detail of this story that I think is so illuminating is, and we can take the Hope Solo and Tim Howard example uh, even one step further, but that the men on the national team, they get paid per game just for showing up. Yes. Whereas the women get paid only if they win. Yep. They So just the fact that Hope Solo made anywhere even near the amount that Tim Howard did this year means that not only did she play in so many more games, but that she won so many more games. Yeah. It's,
1: it's, it's, it's bizarre. I mean, it's sort of like a, it's just a bizarre through the looking glass kind of pay yeah. system when you kind of step back and you think, huh? It's hard not to, it's hard not to get angry about it because, you know, you're, again, you hear so much about meritocracy you know, it's, it's about winning, it's about ratings, it's about this, it's about that. And then when the women do that, they still don't make as much. Not you to know? mention
0: that they have to play on turf fields, oh, that God. their travel expenses are different, that their per diems are different, that even the things that, like, should be so simple and straightforward and would be cheap and easy to make the same are still not even the same. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's it's like what Carly Lloyd said uh, on 60 Minutes, and, I, and I've heard it in a, ver- a variety of other forms. We feel like we're treated like second-class citizens because they don't care about, about us as much as they do the men. And I think Hope Solo has said on previous occasions that there's this expectation that female athletes at the team, and I believe it was Hope Solo who said this, have to be grateful for what they get yeah. as opposed yeah. to ex, you know expecting to get what they deserve.
0: Well, if the listeners haven't picked up on this already... <laughs> Um, Clearly, a conversation about women's sports can very quickly turn into one about money and equality. And it seems to me that there's something that gets lost in translation between support for women's sports in theory, but then it doesn't necessarily translate to financial support from investors and fans and sponsors that would make these leagues and teams really sustainable. So... I I am not one to to only complain and not try to offer up some solutions. So uh, I'll put it to you of of what do you think should be done to make women's sports more sustainable?
1: A lot of people may not like this answer, but I'm a big believer in the big brother structure, so to speak, Uh, and by this I mean I think women's sports franchises need to have, and whether it's leagues or teams, they need to have the support of their male sort of counterpart or male opposite number. So if it's the NWHL, it needs to be the NHL. If it's the NBA, it needs to be the WNBA. Um, You can also go down to a team by team level. I know in Portland with soccer, they've had a tremendous amount of success with the two, the men's pro team and the women's pro team working together on the marketing side. Um, right. I just think that it's silly not to take advantage of the institutional knowledge, the best practices that have been developed on the men's professional side of a particular sport. Also, I think men's professional teams will find that if they support women's franchise in their city that they'll reap benefits too because it'll raise the level of awareness about what they're doing it'll also I think perhaps expose them to an even broader audience and it can be as simple as this And, and I know they've done this in some hockey cities where you have a women's professional team and a men's professional team and they'll schedule the women's practice before the men's practice and they'll basically kind of say to the media, hey, show up at this point. So as the women are getting off the ice and the men are getting on the ice for the practice, for their practice, you have media there with nothing to do and they start saying, oh, maybe I'll talk to some of these female hockey players because, heck, three of them are Olympians, so there could be a good story there. <laughs> I mean, I think you know it can be as simple as that or it can be as simple right. as holding a double header. You know, the Bruins hold a double header with the Pride, for example. That could be one example, Um, you know, inviting, inviting uh, two teams from the NWHL to the Winter Classic last year at Foxborough. um, Right. You know, Gillette Stadium was a big deal. So I think all there are lots of little ways in which men's pro leagues and men's pro franchises can support women. And I think that's part of the solution. I know that people kind of often want to have women do it on their own and uh, carry the banner by themselves but I think a little help from the men's side isn't a bad thing and and actually could be quite a good thing and and could solve some real problems.
0: All right, well, I think we should leave it there on that optimistic note. Uh, (laughs) And um, let's take a quick break and then when we come back, uh, we're gonna talk about some stories in women's sports that you may have missed this year. Okay, so welcome back. So, Shira, you wrote a recent column on some uh, stories people may have missed. And I had a couple of my favorites, and then, and then I want to hear from you. Um, but tell me, tell the listeners a little bit about what was happening with the Brazilian women's soccer team this year.
1: So, what's really cool is that about a month ago now, uh, the Brazilian women's soccer team appointed its first female head coach. And it's a really big deal um, in a lot of ways. First of all, not least of which because from about 1941 through 1979, women weren't allowed to play soccer at any level, okay? So when they— 1979? 1979, yes. Wow. Exactly. So, I mean, you're starting from scratch with your player pool. And to now be wow. at a point where you've got a former player, her name is Emily Lima, and she's gonna be your first female head coach of the women's national team, that's big. It's big because she's a role model for how women in the you know who are players now can continue their careers when they when they're no longer able to play. And it's also important because Brazilian soccer still tends to be male dominated. So I think the mm-hmm. more you have women infiltrating the ranks of coaching as well as administrative and executive ranks within the Brazilian Soccer Confederation. That's all for the good because there's a you need women's voices in the room. I also
0: think that this is a good thing for U.S. soccer and for soccer, women's soccer internationally, because the better the competition. The, the better the event, right? The more exciting it is to watch. So I am a big believer and a big proponent that um, the success of, of the U.S. women's national team and of, of women's sports in, in the United States is also heavily dependent on the development of sport in other countries. So I when I read this story, I thought that this was a really great step toward making women's soccer as competitive as, as physically possible.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think... <laughs> one of the thing areas where women's soccer struggles is it obviously doesn't have the depth that men's soccer has the more countries want to invest are looking for ways to involve women in national soccer programs as coaches as players whatever the case may be the more depth you're going to see on the women's side when it comes to the world cup and other international tournaments And the more competition you have, the more parity there is in women's soccer, obviously the product improves and it becomes more appealing to advertisers and all of the stuff that we're talking about before comes into play.
0: Yes. Agreed. Definitely. Bravo, Brazil. Good job. Yes. Yes. (laughs) All right. So the next uh, story you may have missed, or should I say the next million dollar contract you may have missed, uh, was for softball I believe she's a pitcher. Yes, uh, softball pitcher Monica Abbott. So, tell us a little bit about Monica and and her her million dollar contract
1: that she signed this year. Well, you are correct. Uh, Monica is a pitcher, and she signed a six year million dollar deal with a team called the Scrapyard Dogs, and they compete in the National Pro Fast Pitch Softball League. It's believed to be the most lucrative contract uh, that, uh, that it's been awarded um, to an athlete in American team sports history. So how does this
0: happen? How, how do you get a, a contract this large in a league that very few of us have, have heard, heard of? Ever. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, you have to go to the structure of the deal. My understanding is that the structure of the deal is such that she receives um, a base salary of 20000 per year. And don't forget, this is spread over six years. This is not, you know, I, you know, 48 million over three years. This is 1 million over six years. So that's the first thing. Yeah. And then I believe her base salary is something like 20,000 per season. And then there are a bunch of bonuses and they're all attendance triggered bonuses. Apparently they're pretty easy to reach, but they are bonuses. Um, and that's how the money adds up.
0: Well, how fascinating. I just I just thought that this story, I, I remember hearing about it when it happened, but uh, rereading your piece, I I just thought, you know, how funny that here we are griping about, you know, how, how women's athletes can't make any money, have to hold all of these extra jobs. And then, you know, little old softball who nobody even saw coming is kind of changing the game in this way.
1: Which is really <laughs> cool. I like that it's softball and I like because it then it makes you think about, well, why can't the bigger sports figure out something like this and get creative, or the more well-known sports get creative. Yeah. On the other hand, yeah. the, the downside is, I think we're just a long, long, long way from you know any sort of, let's say, meaningful money. Right.
0: Well, anyway, congratulations to Monica. I hope that she hits all of her uh, bonus strike. triggers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, OK. I was going to say hits the strike zone, but yeah. Good, good, oh well, good. that too. That too, yes. actually.
0: <laughs> yes. Um, okay, and and so lastly, what what was uh, the story for you this year uh, that that you think people people shouldn't miss?
1: Yes. This was be sort of you know, this is something I included in my column. And it wasn't so much that people shouldn't miss this, but I just think this woman should be given as much attention and as much praise. And it should keep coming and we shouldn't forget her and every opportunity there is to talk about her we should talk about her so i'm gonna put pat summit in there um Mm. because her passing made me remember all the tributes that came in made me remember what a pioneer she was and how she stuck her neck out and how strong willed she was but i think it's important that we really pay our respects again and again and again to these pioneering women uh, because Mm. it's tough now, but I don't think we have any concept. And I say this speaking as somebody who was, you know, grew up with Title IX. I don't think many younger women have any true concept of how hard it was. She had so many obstacles put in front of her when she was coaching the, the Tennessee women's team early on. And I guess, you know, the favorite anecdote, and I mentioned this in the column, but the favorite anecdote of, of, that I have that I read um, in many of the remembrances about her was that at one point, the Tennessee, some Tennessee officials approached her and said, you know, hey, would you like to coach the men's team? Assuming that this was kind of a promotion in some ways. Mm-hmm. And she mm-hmm. simply replied, you know, why is that considered a step up? And I think, you know, that's (laughs) such a great message to send, you know, because I think, you know, whatever profession you're in, whether you're a reporter or maybe a coach, you always sort of say to yourselves, well, okay, covering the men's professional team or covering the men's college team is the next step if you're on a woman's beat. And it shouldn't necessarily be that way. I mean, just a, another yeah. one that comes to mind, and again, I hate to be always calling upon the column stuff, but those are the things that kind of <laughs> came to mind. Was And I happened yeah. to be there when this woman uh, won her bronze medal. Um, this Tunisian fencer, her name is Inez Boubakri. I hope I'm pronouncing that mm-hmm. right. Apologies to all the Tunisian f- fencing fans if I am not. Um, <laughs> But I was there when she won the, the bronze medal. And what I remember is there was a group of, you know, it was almost unbelievable, but there was this group of, it must've been 20 or 30 male reporters. I think it was the entire Tunisian media contingent. And they were surrounding her in the mix zone in Rio. And they were just, they, some were crying. They were in absolute awe of what this woman had done. She had won the bronze medal, but but, but this, the historical significance was that it was Afri- she was Africa's first female Olympic fencing medalist. Um, a yeah. big deal, but bigger because she used that opportunity to kind of speak out on behalf of Arab women everywhere, which was like incredibly bold of her, I felt, and incredibly mm-hmm. cool because here she is surrounded by all these male reporters and she's saying, I have a message to you about the value of women. And she says, you know, this bronze medal is a message which says you must believe that women exist and that they have their place in society. And as we all know, that I almost just got chills. Yeah, I mean, that isn't often the case in a lot of societies, Um, not just for Arab women, but in a lot of societies around the world. And I love, you know, the Olympics is absolutely at its best. You know, and there's lots of problems with the Olympics, but it's at its best. when it can be a platform for people like Bhubakri advocating for equality.
0: Yeah, there's a, there's a quote that I read in an article once, and I'm sorry that I can't remember uh, who wrote it, but it was about women's boxing. Mm-hmm. And there was this great quote that said, uh, women's boxing matters because women's sports matters because women matter. Yes, And yes. that to me really summed it up, the importance of women's
1: sports. Yes. And I mean, those are the stories that I gravitate toward, but Mm -hmm. when you can cover an event where the athlete sends a message, when it's more than just the medal, particularly at the Olympics, that's really something special.
0: Well, to pioneers in women's sports, past and present, and to those in the future, uh, I hope that 2017 is even better than 2016. Welcome back. Uh, we have thus far covered many of the biggest stories in women's sports that you probably did hear about and a few that maybe you missed. Um, but while we're in retrospective mode, I didn't want to miss out on the opportunity to ask you, Shira, a couple questions about your own career um, as we look back on this uh, end-of-year episode. So what would you say, looking back on your Uh, 20-year career thus far, what was your breakout story or uh,
1: some of your enduring favorites? So I'd say probably my breakout story came, gosh, uh, I think it was 1998, and it was when number 16, Harvard, defeated number one, Stanford, in the first round of the NCAA women's basketball tournament. It was the first time that a 16 seed had beaten um, a number one seed. And mm-hmm. um, the reason was it, why it was sort of a, a breakout for me was because it was the first time where I, I first of all, I, I'd been at, at the paper for less than a year. Um, And I remember getting out there and then having the realization that, okay, this story is more than about what happened on the court. It's about what happens afterwards. So I remember that night, I just went up to the coaches and I said exactly that. I said, I think part of the story here is what you do next. I said, are you guys going to go somewhere to celebrate? What are you going to do? And I went to the restaurant they went to, and I think it was in Palo Alto to celebrate. Um, I don't really remember the rest. It was Some pizza place. I think it was, think it was like called like Pizza Agogo or something like that. <laughs> um, and I then the coaches invited me into the hotel room where they were watching tape and going to prepare for the next round's game and kind of also celebrating. So I mean, yeah. I think so. It was a breakout because. I recognize you know, I, I covered this a, a huge story, a huge national story that nobody expected to be a national story, but mm, it was also mm-hmm. a breakthrough for me personally, because I began to get the concept that it wasn't only what happened on the basketball court, but rather what happened all around it, And I began to really not only appreciate but enjoy the coverage of the context in which sports takes yeah. place.
0: All right. So so you mentioned a lesson that that you learned, uh, but what's been what's been the best piece of advice that someone else has given you? You've actually followed.
1: I mean, I think some of it's some of it's just very basic advice and you're going to laugh at this. But, you know, come prepared, you know, be on time. (laughs) You know what I mean? So there's that simple advice. It's not like the best advice, but it's just something, you know, you always come back to be professional, do your job kind of stuff. I will say that a really cool thing that, you know, somebody gave me about writing or was talking to me about writing. And I think, you know, this has been passed down to a number of people, but they were talking about the, in in writing feature stories, choosing details that matter. Don't just describe Mm -hmm. everything in a room because you want to set the scene, pick details Mm -hmm. that matter. And so the example I was given the setup was the story of this lawyer and sitting in front of a photograph of a burning building. And the reporter asks, why do you have this photo behind your desk? And the, the lawyer responds, because the bad guy is still in the building. And the, the idea is that that tells you a lot about the character of this particular lawyer and how he feels about how, yeah. what he does. I believe he was a prosecutor. Um, and that conveys so much yeah. more than you could ever convey with a string of two or three descriptive sentences. You know, you be judicious about the details. Um, be prepared and be on time and all of those good things.
0: <laughs> well, Shira, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has really been such such a nice conversation and a good look back at a lot of, you know, progress and challenges that that women's sports have faced. And I'm sure there will be much more to come. Um, Next year. So uh, as I say to all of my guests, good game, Shira. (laughs) Thanks
1: for having me. Glad you thought I played well.
0: (laughs) That does it for this week. Thanks again to Shira for joining the show. Remember to check out the website, nybfsports.com, to find old episodes and sign up for the newsletter. Plus, you can follow the show on Twitter, that's at NYBF Sports, or give us a like on Facebook at Not Your Boyfriend's Sports Show. Hope everyone has a relaxing holiday season and a very happy new year. And as always, good game listeners.